Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 7. We're going to finish up chapter 7 in the book of Acts, starting at verse 54. We're going to go all the way to chapter 8, verse 1. We're just going to peek in there briefly today. So Acts 7, 54, all the way through 8, 1. This is in response to the, the, the epic message that Stephen, the deacon, just preached in confronting the religious elite of his day. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful For your word, we, we know, Lord, that it is true. We pray, God, that we would have hearts that receive it well. Lord, that our hearts would not be hardened to your truth, but, we would be, but that we would be changed by it. Help us, Lord, to grow today, to learn and to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. You probably remember a time or two when you have been confronted with an uncomfortable truth about yourself, right? Where like somebody says something about you that is absolutely true, but you don't really like hearing it because it's uncomfortable, it's ugly. You know, you get corrected or called out on something that you do or had done. I happen to spend a lot of time with a group of men called the elders, and uh, it's a great group. I love these brothers. But they are usually the, well, that's probably the second group of people to call me out and be like, hey, bro, (laughs) you got to check that attitude right there. Like They'll be the first person to point out a problem or an error in my life, right? Maybe not the first. My family's probably the first group of people to see it, right? But those are good. Like, those are good interactions to have. We need to be called out. We need to be confronted with uncomfortable truths. But you know how it is. You get confronted with the uncomfortable truth. and, And how do we typically respond? How do we want to respond? Well, maybe, maybe we just ignore it, right? That's an easy thing to do. Somebody says something, they offer you the correction, they're like, hey, what's up with this? This doesn't seem right, or you know, you've, you've done something wrong. And maybe we ignore it by saying, hey, I hear you, which we don't, right? We're totally lying. I hear you, I gotcha, and we move on. We're just gonna ignore the thing, let it blow on past, and pretend everything is okay. If we don't ignore it, sometimes we just outright reject it. We just say, no, I, uh, I think you're wrong, and we disagree, and we, we defend ourselves now, and we're gonna, we're gonna take a kind of offense, and and say like, well, no, I'm going to prove that you're wrong in your assessment of me and your correction of me. And sometimes we're just super angry. How dare somebody confront me and say these things about me, even if they're true. It's like we are so filled with pride at times, we cannot see the truth about ourselves, even when it's plainly offered. Or when the uncomfortable 
truth is confronting us, we can hear it and receive it. And we can learn to rest in the resolution that comes with dealing with it. The Southern Baptist Convention is going through this right now. So the Baptist Convention has been confronted with our sin. Now, really, uh, we heard these accusations that had been leveled against some in leadership in our executive committee. Basically, that these few men at the top were getting reports of sexual abuse going on in churches and they weren't doing anything about it. Oh, no, actually, I'm sorry, they did a couple things. Uh, they ignored it uh, and they, uh, they mocked and demonized the victims. So they did some things, just wicked things. So we got wind of this and we called for an independent investigation to happen. The messengers, we did that. We said, let's make sure there's an independent investigation. And so we got that report back recently and there is, there's a reckoning, right? Now, okay, so now we know. Here's the uncomfortable truth. What are we going to do? Are we going to ignore it? Are we going to defend ourselves? Are we going to become self-righteous and try to excuse it? Are we going to just blame it on those bad guys at the top, the, the fat cat good old boys? Or are we going to ex accept a corporate responsibility for the problem that's happening on our watch and our convention? And at the annual convention this year in Anaheim, California, the convention of almost 50,000 churches, millions of members, but in Anaheim, California, we had about 8,000 messengers there representing those churches, and we overwhelmingly responded in humility and repentance when the recommendations came forth from the Sexual Abuse Task Force. These are first steps of bringing resolution to the problem. I'm grateful for how the Southern Baptist Convention is beginning to handle it. But this issue of being confronted with uncomfortable truth, particularly the truth of God, is what we see in this passage. And, and here's the principle that I'd really like you to take away. I want you to hold on to this and think about it for where you are at and how you're interacting with the word of God. Because in this passage, we see that the truth of God and the gospel, right, the truth of God and the gospel can produce rage or rest. It doesn't necessarily produce either because people can just ignore it. But when you interact with it, when you actually are confronted with it, it will produce either rage or rest. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this passage in two basic sections, right? How the truth of God and the gospel can produce rage. We'll see that first. And then we'll look at how the truth of God and the gospel can produce rest. We see it particularly in Stephen. So first, how does the truth of God and the gospel lead to rage? Well, look at verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. So Stephen just preached an epic sermon, right? By the way, epic doesn't mean long. Anybody can preach a long, boring sermon. Stephen's sermon was epic. And we were grateful to have Travell preach an epic sermon on Stephen's epic sermon, right? Good, sweeping understanding of who God is and the history of Israel and the prophets. He was preaching the truth of God and the gospel, but he was applying it specifically to these religious leaders of the day, to the Sanhedrin. He applies it to them in such a way he, where Stephen is calling them to repent of their sins. And they didn't like that. They were not about to take very kindly to Stephen. He, he's, we don't, they don't even know what he is. 
He's a deacon. That's a new thing. Like, was a deacon of this offshoot of Judaism, these rabble-rousers that are claiming Jesus rose from the dead. We know they, took, we took, they had to have taken his body. Something happened. We don't know where Jesus is at. His body's not in the tomb. But they're saying that he rose, and now there's this movement happening. They don't like it. And now here's this guy telling them that they've misunderstood God and the history of Israel and the prophets, and he's calling them to repentance, and they are enraged. Note this, that even the truth of God offered generally and generically isn't going to offend anybody. But the truth of God applied. The truth of God given specifically to individuals. So that's not we're just talking about generalities out there abstractly, but that, no, God calls all men everywhere to repent of their sins specifically. And so here is Stephen applying the truth of God directly to these educated religious leaders. And they are not hurt. They are angry, filled with rage. You see this? They heard these things and they were enraged. Now, you see that word and you think, okay, well, they're enraged, so they're just super angry. It's not just that they're angry. There's something deeper going on here. That word that we're translating enraged, it means to be cut to the quick. It means to be cut to the heart. It, meant, it means that they're feeling it on some internal level. It's conviction, but it's conviction without comfort, right? It's not conviction that leads to conversion, but they're feeling a, a sense of pain. It's a, it's a pressure point for them where the truth of God is penetrating and laying them bare. And so in the midst of this, they are angry. It can lead to sorrow, which can lead to repentance, but this is just pride and anger. And so it says what? That they grind their teeth, right? You get the picture. It's, it's the bearing of their teeth and, and grinding them. It's an expression of rage, wrath, or anger. And it might seem, it might seem excessive to some of you. Why are they so angry? Because, the, you know, Stephen is telling them they need to repent. It's because in his preaching of God's word, he is telling them, you have misunderstood God's word, and therefore you have misunderstood God. Therefore, you have missed God altogether filled with rage. And here's the thing. When confronted with the truth of God and even the gospel at times, rage is rather common. That's a common response when you actually are interacting with the truth of God in a serious way without faith. For example, Psalm chapter 2. By the way, stick your pen or your thumb or something in here. We'll come back to it at the end. But in Psalm chapter 2, listen to the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's how the world responds to the revelation and the authority of God. It's normal. It's not good. It's natural in our fallen state to respond this way to God's truth when we don't have faith and submission to that truth. Why does the world rage? Why does it happen? Why do people respond this way? Why are these leaders responding this way to Stephen? It's because the truth of God and the gospel expose us. Truth of God exposes us. It shows us who we really are. We are confronted with the ugly reality. We can't pretend before the face of God. We can't, we can't put on a show before the word of God and justify ourselves. We are laid bare. We are found to be guilty, which is an uncomfortable place to be, particularly if there's no way to justify ourselves. Guilty, therefore condemned. 
You know why we get angry when the word of God confronts us? Because the word of God exposes our own folly, which is embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's convicting in that way. I've been spending my time um, in the Proverbs uh, this month. So proverb a day keeps the devil away, right? That kind of a thing. And so today is June 19th, right? All right, so check it. I was looking at this this morning. Proverbs 19, verse 3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. This is a damning verse. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin. We understand this, right? It's the whole you reap what you sow, dummy. Kind of a thing. Like, okay, when my folly brings ruin. In other words, we make bad decisions or indecisions. We, uh, we, we pursue sin and selfish ambition. We create a world of chaos for ourselves that leads to destruction and ruin. And when that happens because of our own doing, what do we do? We blame shift. We immediately start looking like, well, pff, I don't know how that happened, but it had nothing to do with me. And we'll blame shift to our past, the way we were raised, our neighborhood, our culture, or we'll blame God. You did this, or you didn't do enough to stop it. We shake our fist at, or we point our finger at God and blame him. We bring ruin to our own lives through folly, and then our hearts rage against the Lord. This is common because we don't like how it feels. And so what, what do we do? We, we just refuse to listen. We don't want to hear it. We start to shut it down. And this is what happens, right? Because look at the leaders responding to Stephen. This is absolutely embarrassing to, to, to read and, and to watch as it unfolds. But so check it. We'll start in verse 55, right? So Stephen, right, he's, he knows what's happening. They're coming after him. It says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. We're going to come back to this. Sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he says, he can't hold it in. He starts talking. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They literally, these educated Fancy leaders of the day cover their ears and go la 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 la, and they don't want to hear the things that Stephen is saying. This is childish. This is foolishness. Reason and logic have departed the, the venue, and all that's left is their emotion. They are emotionally responding to this conviction that feels very uncomfortable. It's painful, it's awkward. He's, he's transitioned from pointing at them and saying, you need to repent. Now he's simply talking about, I see Jesus, the son of man, he calls him. And they cannot bear it. They don't want to listen. They're trying to shut it down. And so they kill him. You see verse 58? They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is, listen, the first time I heard, I've mentioned it here, the first time I heard, I was a new Christian, and my friend Alex, he said, hey, um, I'm reading this section in Acts where Stephen gets stoned. And I remember thinking, like, well, how... 
we don't do that anymore. Why? I don't know. Because I had no frame of reference, right? Because the only stone I know of is like sneak a token. Like, I don't know what they're talking about. Because we don't do that here. That's not a part of our culture. And I wasn't particularly biblically well-read at the time. But stoning, stoning was a brutal reality in this context. Everybody understood what it was. And so, yeah, I can, I can joke about it because of my ignorance, but when you, when you really see the reality of it, it's horrifying. And this was a normal means of capital punishment. And these religious leaders of the day think they're being biblical. It says they, they, they take Stephen out of the city. You know why they take him out of the city? Because in their minds, he is guilty of blasphemy, worthy to be condemned, like actually put to death by stoning. And so they're following Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 21, where they say, expel this immoral man from you. Take him out of the city. Purge the city of this evil. That's where you stone them. So they think they're doing the right thing in their own minds, right? They're justifying this. And so they're, oh, now we're going to be biblical, they think. And this was a common form of capital punishment, stoning. Listen, it's not, it'll say that they threw rocks at him. It, we all grew up as kids and we all had rocks thrown at us, right? Or you were the little jerks throwing the rocks. One or the other happened. You were either the victim or you were the criminal, right? So some of us did both, right? Uh, but yeah, we all know what that's like. And you get hit with a rock and what happens? You get a knot on your head. Maybe you get a black eye, bloody lip, you're fine. But I'm not talking about throwing rocks, Rocks were common in the landscape. So you pick up two-handed heavy rocks and you throw them or drop them on the heads of the criminals to put them to death. It was brutal. It was violent. It was bloody. And this is what they're doing to Stephen. You see how it says they took off their garments? These witnesses, because the witnesses are the ones that do the stoning, right? So these witnesses take off their garments and lay their garments at the feet of this guy named Saul. You know why they took off their garments? Because killing somebody is hard. Because murder is messy. And make no mistake, that's what this is. This is murder. This is not a just execution of a criminal. Stephen's a good man, a godly man. So they would take off their garments so they could move freely. They're going to work up a sweat and killing someone. They lay their feet, their robes at Saul's feet. Saul, it says in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. Saul, we've already talked about this. Saul is a student of Gamaliel. It says he's a young man. You see that? They laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. Young man. It's actually a technical term here. It means he was between mid-20s and 40. In the SBC, speaking of the SBC, you're considered, some of, some of you know this, Steve McCoy knows this, you're considered a young leader if you're a pastor under the age of 40. Once you hit 40, no longer young. You're like out of that club, which is good because the young leader group is not cool at all. It's not a cool place to be. You don't want to be there. But um, that's it. And that, that's sort of like what it is here. And most scholars would say, okay, so Saul at this point is probably 30 years old. He's a young man, a student of Gamaliel, like the biggest dog of the day in terms of Jewish theology and scholarship and the scriptures, the rabbi of rabbis. And Paul is a leader who is, in a sense, leading the charge against this new church called the Way, right? This, this following of Jesus. And he is organizing the persecution and therefore the murder of Christians like Stephen. The truth of God in the gospel produces rage. 
If you can't receive it with faith, but you're actually interacting with it, if you feel the pressure of the law of God, the truth of God, rage is common. But what we see in Stephen is the opposite. In Stephen, we see how the truth of God in the gospel produces rest. Rest in the midst of chaos. Look at verses 55. But he, in the midst of this confrontation, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look at, this is what Stephen saw. This is what Stephen saw this. This is, we talk about it this way, Stephen's sight. What do we know about Stephen's sight here? Well, it says that he's full of the Holy Spirit, which is not a surprise, right? Uh, When they chose deacons, which is what Stephen is, they chose men full of the Holy Spirit, meaning these are people that are compelled by the spirit characterized by the spirit they bear the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control like these are people that are dominated not by the flesh but by the spirit these are godly people of good reputation Stephen is full of the spirit and as he's full of the spirit his life is coming to an end he looks up and he sees into heaven he gazed into heaven and he saw why is he looking up? Why is he looking into heaven? Kind of reminds me of John. We, we, went, we spent a year in the book of Revelation, right? And how many times does it say? John says, and I look and behold. And, be, and I looked and I saw. I saw these visions of Jesus in heaven. Similar here. A lot of scholars would argue that actually this is not a vision though. This is something different. Maybe it's a vision. But it may be that, that, that Stephen looks up At this crisis moment in his life, he looks up full of the spirit and God opens a door and lets lets him peek in to see glory and to see Jesus. Why is he looking up? Why do you think Stephen does that? He looks up. Because not too long ago, I mean, just a little while ago, they were looking up. Jesus ascended into heaven and he said, I'll be back. He ascended into heaven and these early Christians, they know, they, under, they, they knew, they understood that Jesus is enthroned in heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and he sits at the right hand of the Father on high. So he looks up. I don't know. I tend to think he probably looked up not expecting to actually see anything and then all of a sudden, what? He sees in heaven and he sees God's glory. Now we know that no one can actually see God as he is and live. Scripture says this. No one can see God and live. But we do have this expression that people see God's glory. And sometimes it's metaphorical, right? You see God's glory in the beauty of creation or you see God's glory in the, in the, in the, the beauty of the, his revelation about himself and his work. And then sometimes it's a, bit, it's a bit more than that, than a metaphor. I'll give you a couple of examples here. Psalm 63, verse 2. Psalm 63, 2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So in the, in the temple or in the tabernacle, right, they could say this, well, I saw you there. Well, they didn't see God, but they saw God in the revelation of who he is and what he has done, both through his mighty works, perhaps, uh, that are described in the reading of Scripture, but in the revelation of himself in Scripture and even in the reflection of who he is in the temple. Sometimes it's more of a vision. 
Sometimes it's something that they kind of see, right? Like Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six, maybe the most famous vision, maybe the most famous vision, the most popular vision that's shared in the Bible. Isaiah chapter six, verse one, listen. In that year, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim angels, and uh, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Fantastic mind-bending, heart-melting vision. He saw God in this vision on a, I mean, it's actually pretty similar to what Stephen saw because what Isaiah is actually seeing is the one we would call Jesus. He's seeing the Son of God in this vision. And we know this because we're told in John, John chapter 12, verse 41, Isaiah spoke these things because he saw his glory. Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah spoke these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. So this is something of what he is seeing. He's seeing the glory of God in heaven and he is seeing the son of man standing at the right hand of God. There's a couple of things that are are, um, important for us here. Um, he, he sees the Son of Man, Jesus, at the right hand of God. Now, this is normal, right? Because Jesus is frequently depicted to be sitting now at the right hand of God, the right hand of the Father, right? This is his place of triumph, his place of victory, the, the seat from which he reigns. Like it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of, of the Almighty. He sat down. We call this his session. Jesus sits enthroned in glory, and from there he reigns. So yes, Stephen looks up, there's glory, there's Jesus, to the right of the Father, just like he knows, but he ain't sitting. What's up with that? Can't make too big of a deal out of it, right? But we've got to make something out of it, I think. I think there's something there. He's always sitting. He's seated. It's called a session. He sits at the right. Why is he standing? My favorite answer, and it's not my favorite answer because I like it, though I do. It just makes the most sense to me. A lot of scholars suggest that Jesus is standing there because he's going to receive Stephen any moment. Stephen is about to enter heaven. And so the son rises from his throne to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He receives him. I think that's pretty beautiful and pretty biblical. But it, Stephen doesn't call him Jesus here. He calls him son of man, which probably just pushes this whole situation over the edge because son of man is actually a very significant title. When Stephen refers to Jesus as son of man, he, he's not just saying like he's one of us. It's not this point. He is referring to Daniel chapter seven. He is pointing back to the prophecy about the son of God, about Jesus. Daniel chapter 7, listen to this vision, verse 13. Then I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Character number one. 
There came one like a son of man, and he came up to the ancient of days, character number two. The ancient of days is another word for God. So the son of man, the one like a son of man, comes up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him, this son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's the word for worship. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the Son of Man. That's who Stephen sees. He knows. And this is his sight. But he can't just have a personal, quiet, religious experience. I love this about Stephen. He doesn't have this awesome experience and, and keep it just for himself. He has to share it. He has to tell it. He has to communicate it. And so in verse 56, he starts talking. He can't, listen, it's his mouth that got him into trouble the first time, right? He can't stop. So he said, behold, I see the heavens. They're open. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They, he says it out loud. That's his testimony. You see, he's... In the midst of all of this, he, in the midst of his life coming to a conclusion, Stephen is experiencing a kind of rest. Rest in the midst of chaos and turmoil. But he has rest in his own heart, in his own soul. You see, rest, rest is a fruit of faith. Right? It, peaceful conditions for life, that's not a promise. But rest or peace in the heart, yes, that is something that we are given. Jesus says this in John 16.33. Right? He, he, let, me, let me read it. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So listen, he says, like, I'm sending you into the world just as I've been sent, you're sent, and you are going to experience trial, tribulation, whether it's the devil or the world or whatever. You're going to suffer. But... In me, you're not just in the world, you're also in me. In me, you will have peace. And this is such a big part of biblical faith, one that we tend to miss out. We don't talk a whole lot about it, but the idea that we are a people that should experience peace in our lives in the midst of chaos is seldom talked about. I think because we don't believe it's really possible. But the biblical writers certainly did, and they experienced it. Stephen's experiencing it right now. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he can't even write a letter without starting off talking about how the peace of God is supposed to be ours. In almost every one of his letters, he, he introduces in the letter and he greets his recipients with a particular phrase. Let me just jump over to Romans real quick, just to give you one example. Romans chapter 1, verse 7, part of his introduction. He says, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you, this is going to sound familiar, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds familiar if you've read the New Testament because Paul says it all the time. He says it in Romans. He says it in 1 Corinthians. He says it in 2 Corinthians. He says it in Galatians. He says it in Ephesians. He says it in Philippians. He says it in Colossians. In 1 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians. In 1 Timothy. In 2 Timothy. In Titus. In Philemon. In 2 John. In 3 John. Like, Paul, John, Peter, they all say it. Grace and peace are supposed to be ours in Jesus. And this is not just some, like, oh, well, I have peace with God. That is the foundation of it. But peace with God gives us peace in our hearts, in our lives. It's rest. 
But note this, like how, okay? Grace and peace to you. How do I get it? What do I do? Listen to what Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. May grace and peace, same thing. He's doing a Paul. He's doing a Paul, does what John does. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace is multiplied to us. We experience an abundance, an increasing abundance of grace and peace in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives through what? Through the knowledge of God and Jesus, the truth of God and the gospel. That's called theology. Theology is not the study of God. Don't get it wrong. Most of the definitions are wrong. Theology is the study of God. Okay, in a sense. Theology really is the knowledge of God personally experienced and then publicly expressed. That's what theology is. It's words of God. But it's words of the knowledge of God that we are supposed to know and own and feel and then share with others just like Stephen. That's what Stephen's doing. Theology. It's not abstract and theoretical. It's real. And peace is being multiplied to him. So we see Stephen's sight. He sees into heaven. We see Stephen's testimony. He can't hold it in. He's got to do theology, right? So it's public. And look at Stephen's heart. Here's where you really see the rest. Verses 59 and 60. Because he prays. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's the only time, I could be wrong, but I think it's the only time in scripture where somebody is seen to be actually praying directly to Jesus. It's good to pray to Jesus. You should. You can pray to Jesus, you can pray to the spirit, you can pray to the father. Though, predominantly, the example is praying to the father. He's praying to Jesus. Probably because he's looking at him. He sees him. And he knows his time is over. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He has peace in the midst of his persecution. But he doesn't just pray to Jesus, does he? He prays for his persecutors. That's where you see the real rest. Because I don't want him to pray for his persecutors. I want to step in and I want to put my boot on their neck because they're wicked, evil people killing an innocent, godly man. I hate them. I want them to suffer for what they're doing. But Stephen has peace. He has love as the byproduct of that peace, even for those that are doing evil against him. So he prays for them. Look at what it says in verse 60. Falling to his knees as he's dying, falling to his knees, he cries out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he died. The last thing that he said was, God, have mercy on these people that are killing me. Only a man who experiences rest that comes from the truth of God and the gospel can have this perspective, can offer this kind of prayer. Peace coming from faith allows love to flow and to flourish. Where's his rage at? Why isn't he angry? He did everything he's supposed to do. We need somebody to step up and take care of these widows who are being overlooked. It's not a glorious job. It's not a glamorous job, but we need somebody who loves to serve and loves people. Who's got it? Stephen's like, I'm in. I'm all about it. Let's serve people. 
So Stephen is faithful to his calling. He puts the church first. He loves Jesus. He's healing people and he's getting pushback. He's getting persecution. So what does he do? Does he slink away and be quiet? No, he stands up and he says, all of y'all got it wrong. And he preaches at these religious leaders who are wrong. And then it gets worse. And now they're murdering him and he's not mad. How is he not mad at his circumstances? It's because the truth of God and the gospel has produced in him a supernatural kind of rest. That's his heart. The truth of God and the gospel produces rest. And let me just, let me just leave you with one thing. We'll go back to Psalm 2. Because the truth of God is going to do one thing or the other. It always does. Ultimately, it's going to produce one thing or the other. It's going to produce rage or rest in the end. And in Psalm 2, we find a warning, but also an encouragement. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So they are refusing the Lord's authority and his anointed. Now that would refer immediately to the king, but we also know that Psalm 2's anointed refers to Jesus. When the authority of God and his anointed, his son, show up, the natural response of unbelievers is to say what? No, thank you. We want to cast it off. We don't want to have anything to do with this. This is the natural response that we should expect. We all rage against God in ourselves. All have fallen and fall short of God's glory. And God establishes his son as king. We keep reading verse 4, the wicked, I'm sorry, verse 4 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, laughs at those that are trying to cast off his authority. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. And the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He is giving to his son, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the eternal word. He says, I'm giving you the inheritance of all. So we have Jesus set up as king to whom all will give an account. We cannot escape the, the authority of God, the truth of God, or the gospel. But he doesn't leave us there. We're not left to merely suffer the wrath that we deserve. Verse 10 in Psalm 2 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Again, serve. It's the Old Testament word for worship here. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so while this sounds hard to some people, the real message here is that when the Son shows up, he has authority to judge and to destroy. But what does he offer us? Rescue, refuge, rejoicing, 
We can serve him. We can worship him. We're supposed to kiss the son that is gladly receive him for who he is. That's the offer. It's the offer that we have in the truth of God and the gospel. He invites us to bow down to the son and to receive salvation. So Stephen, last thing he says is what? Lord, forgive them of this sin and all of their other sins. And what happens? He dies. And later on, the leader of that group has his sins forgiven and he is reconciled to the Father. He believes in Jesus. The one that is called Saul is also called Paul. And he goes on to write so much of our New Testament. We'll read about him in the book of Acts, his transformation. You see, the rest that we need is a rest from our striving to make ourselves acceptable to God. It's a rest from the judgment of God that we deserve. It's a rest from our own rage against God's truth. We rest from rage in Jesus Christ who offers us the resolution that we need. And if we listen and heed God's word, the resolution that we can rejoice in. So let's look to Jesus like Stephen and find the rest that he offers all who come to him in faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would convict us and encourage us that as we walk in repentance, Lord, that you would move us to rejoice. Pray, Lord, that that we would learn from your saints from their failures and from their successes. And here we have a saint's success. He was faithful by your grace. He was faithful to you. Lord, we want to be like Stephen in this as he was like Jesus. While he was suffering and afflicted, he submitted himself to your will and found joy and rest in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.